Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland. I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. Today, my guest is Ian McLoon. He is a clinical counselor and alcohol and drug counselor that has been helping people and their relationship with substances his entire career. He works with individuals and families, and he's passionate about supporting therapists in treating addiction as well. Ian is also a member of community faculty at the University of Minnesota's Integrated Behavioral Health Clinical Counseling Program. And today we're going to talk about compassionate care for individuals struggling with substance use disorder and how therapists can take a harm reduction approach to help everyone who is struggling with addiction. Maybe some people that aren't ready to go to rehab or don't need to go to rehab, or people who want to define what recovery is for them themselves, what that looks like, and how this treatment model helps people find support, get around the stigma of addiction, and get people into a place where they can change their life for the better. So I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. I really enjoyed talking to Ian. And if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That would be great. It really does help the podcast get found and click the subscribe button. Also, you can join our Facebook group, go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I have Ian McLoon with me today, and we're going to talk about some interesting topics. We're going to talk about harm reduction. We're going to talk about therapists being trained in addiction treatment and why therapy is a is a good way to help treat addiction. So, Ian, introduce yourself. Let us know a little bit about you and what got you into this field, and, and we'll jump into all those topics in a bit. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much. What an honor to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. This is great. So yeah, my name is Ian McLoon. I'm a a therapist licensed as a clinical counselor and alcohol and drug counselor here in 
Minnesota. I found my way into this corner of the field after my own struggle with addiction. In my case, it was opiates and then heroin. And I I ended up going to rehab in 2010. And you know, at the time it was, it was a strange experience. There's definitely something about it that didn't sit well for me, but it took me until, you know, after I was out and had started grad school to understand exactly how strange and intense that experience was. And so I had the kind of confrontational and extreme kind of in-your-face experience in rehab that made me realize there has to be a better way to do this. There has to be a way to treat addiction while also maintaining the humanity of the people who are coming to get help. That old-school treatment model it sounds like that old school treatment model that, you know, we're just, we're going to throw it at you and just pound you into the ground. We're going to break you down in order to build you back up, which for me that it, it didn't resonate. There were things about yeah. myself that I liked and that I loved. There were things about myself that people in my life loved but this problem this really severe addiction that i had developed was sapping the life out of me and taking away all of those things that made me who i was and so i needed to get back to health in order to reestablish my connection with those parts of myself not Uh, completely obliterate who I was and then get built up by some people who had known me for just a few months that that didn't resonate with me so it's so kind of like they didn't they didn't really know you so they're kind of breaking you down but they didn't they didn't know you well enough to know the the subtleties of of what was important to you and what wasn't important and kind of their agenda or you're done yeah I mean, you know, the the hubris, right? I right. mean, that's it's uh it's 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 striking now. But again, like I said, I just thought that that was normal and that was just how it's done and these folks have been doing it for a long time, so they must know what they're doing. And then again, it wasn't until I, you know, I went to graduate school, I met a mentor who taught me and educated me on what the science says about addiction, what the science says about treatment that works, and what recovery could be, that I really started to shift my paradigm and Mm -hmm. adopt a much more individualized, person-centered, compassionate model and approach for helping people with addiction. And so that's what I've been doing. So for the, you know, about the first 10 years of my career, I was at this small private addiction psychiatry clinic called Altier Clinic here in St. Paul, where we developed a model that 
is an alternative to the traditional rehab approach where you get assigned to a primary psychiatrist and a primary therapist. And then we work with you over the long haul, helping you through kind of the ups and downs of treatment and early recovery, while also addressing mental health concerns. And then when Altier Clinic closed, I opened Expanse Minnesota with a colleague of mine where we were able to continue the addiction psychotherapy and addiction psychiatry that we've been doing and also add a novel form of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy to the kind of menu of treatment services that we offer folks. So kind of a holistic approach. Let's talk a little bit about this contrast between these kind of two ways of, I guess, clinically handling these problems, this kind of confrontational approach, and then uh, this other I want to say softer approach, but I don't know if that's the the right term for it. But like you said, like person-centered, compassionate, and how you kind of got there from that journey from going from here to kind of learning this and kind of seeing this and then starting to incorporate it in your own work with individuals who are struggling. Yeah, well, you know, one, one thing that I that I like about it is it removes me as the therapist from having to be the expert on all things treatment, addiction, or individual related, right? The people that come to us, they are the experts on their lives. And so as a clinician, as a therapist, it's really important to come alongside the people that we work with and work hard to see the world through their eyes and understand how it was that they find found themselves in this unhelpful relationship with that drug or alcohol or behavior or whatever it is. In a much more proscriptive, kind of top-down, confrontational model, the the staff are the experts, right? They right. know better than you, right? The, the the that old that old adage, right? Your best thinking got you here. So why would you possibly trust what's going through your mind? Well, most addictions, oftentimes an addiction is some kind of adaptation, right? Like people right. don't develop these relationships with substances because they want to get addicted. It's doing right. something. It's serving a purpose and is helping that person function in their life. And so it takes a lot of time, though, to try and understand that, to understand the nuances of that phenomenon and, and how it came to be. In a way, you're helping them find their own way in their own journey, in their own direction, to be able to start to trust their own voice, even in the midst of addiction. One question I have about this, I'm just thinking, is, you know, at some times, addiction is is very life-threatening. And being directive yeah. is like, yeah. I think, you know, it has to be called for. Like, if you want to call that totally. 
directive and and like look you know you could die here and you need to get help like we need to get you here because yeah you know in some ways we are the expert but i i think we're talking about different different things and different pieces of the puzzle so i'd like to explore that a little bit if we could absolutely yeah right and so i mean for me that that speaks to the critical importance of individualized care right and and not got it brushing everyone with the same brush or or assuming that everybody's situation is exactly the same and so but but yeah of course right sometimes there is such so much danger and urgency in that behavior that confrontation is some form of confrontation is required but we can use confrontation while also being compassionate we can use confrontation in a skillful way that doesn't make the individual feel like a bad person right yeah and so i didn't see that kind of I didn't experience that kind of nuance. It was, it was very much like, this is the approach. So everybody's going to fit into this model. Yeah. And this is the old, this is the model that, you know, that, that kind of confrontational model comes out of, you know, addiction treatment that in many ways, early in addiction treatment was left on its own, didn't have the, the research and the science and to, help it was just a moral problem right it's just like you have a moral dilemma here and so we're going to treat you that way like you're making some bad decision and i think mm-hmm. what we understand now is like the brain science shows us like yeah it's a little more complicated than that it's a little it's a little way it's a little bigger than that way more complicated way than, that. Bigger yeah. than that yeah 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 and so i'm also really interested in why so few people who could benefit from it ever seek any kind of help, right? So SAMHSA's had this data for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration of the federal government has had this statistic that that hasn't budged in in literally decades right of all the people in the united states who in the past year meet criteria for a substance use disorder right a clinical term for addiction only at most maybe 12 percent but typically a right around 10 percent of people get any kind of help and and that's even including attending support groups in the community right so not not even just going to rehab or going to a therapist or going to a doctor but also even just attending a support group and i can't help but wonder if one of the barriers to seeking help is that so many people in, you know, like the conventional wisdom is if you are experiencing a substance use issue, then you either need rehab, which is going to involve this kind of 
intense confrontational approach, or they're going to ask you or even require you to commit to lifelong abstinence, right? And so I think also that's that's a big part of where therapists can come in, right? Therapists who are confident in working with substance use issues and also where this individualized approach that meets people where they're at and can embrace things like harm reduction and reduced use goals could, I think, really help bridge that gap. So what I hear you saying is that a barrier to getting that support is is this old kind of school of thinking that's kind of, in in my view, kind of shame-based, uh, a shame-based modality, which I just don't feel like we we heal shame just keeps us stuck it's a painful emotion so it's kind of like uh, we're gonna we're gonna shame you into good behavior which i just don't think works so that keeps people out and then this idea that you know they're looking at maybe this addiction and and to think about never ever doing that addiction again also says i I, i'm not going to go there either so then they they just don't get support they just they just kind of stumble along and, and I'm just thinking of the, until, the percentages you said. Yeah, until it's too yeah, bad. Until, until, until something blows up really bad. Until it's too late or something's terrible. And, you know, the other, the other statistic that goes along with that is, you know, did you know that of those people who meet criteria for a substance use disorder, the vast majority fall on the mild to moderate end of the severity spectrum. And so when you also understand that, then it, it, it further illustrates why, you know, if you're coming home from work and you're still managing the household, you're still getting your things done at work, your boss is happy, you're your kids are doing okay, but you come home every night and drink two bottles of wine. And anytime you try to stop, you struggle, you set limits, but you go over them, right? You make multiple quit attempts, but fail to stick with it. But then you think that your only option is to leave your family, your bills, your job, you know, all your creature comforts and go away for 30 or 60 or 90 days, then that makes a lot more sense why people would avoid any kind of professional help. Yeah. If this is my only option is like rehab and or going away and doing all that, I was like, ah, no, I'm just going to handle it by myself. Instead of getting some, like you say, mild, moderate, getting some level of support that maybe isn't so such a huge step, but still can help you move through that. I, I think that's also like, you know, the term I hear a lot in the, in the last years is that sober curious movement, you know, where yeah. it's like, yeah. I just, I, you know, this isn't doing me a lot of good. I don't need to go to rehab, but I definitely need, I definitely have an issue with this and it kind of gives you permission to, to do it on this level. And I think that therapists are just really well situated to help a lot 
of those folks, right? Because we can see you on your lunch break, right? Especially with Zoom and telehealth, right? We, we, we have a lot more flexibility in terms of convenience. We're a heck of a lot more affordable than a 30-day residential program, right? I mean, what you would spend in a month for a month of rehab could last us years in psychotherapy, right? Yeah. And I think maybe most importantly is the opportunity to learn real world skills and application of those skills while you're living your life right because going away to rehab is a you know i mean it's a bit cloistered right you're yeah you're it's, not a, it's a very protective environment super right and and that serves a function and and can be really vital and critical but you still have to come home and figure out how to do your life without that drug or without drinking and so you know addiction psychotherapy really offers the opportunity to do so in real time yeah and and in a space that kind of meets them where they're at at the level of care that they need exactly exactly tell me a little bit about how when we look at this from a harm reduction perspective what does that mean and and how does harm reduction fit into this model and i think what you're talking about is this group of people that have this mild to moderate substance use issue maybe someone who's way more acute they they have to go to rehab because they're 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 going to need that kind of support but this this other piece of all these people that need support but don't quite need to go to rehab but uh, you know in that mild to moderate range I, I want to know how like the harm reduction piece goes into that and yeah. how, how that incorporates into that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so, I mean, I think even in the most kind of severe cases, rehab is typically ideally thought of as a time limited period for stabilization right? Remove you from your setting, from your day-to-day life where you're in these habits and associations and patterns and and they're super entrenched and you have withdrawal symptoms, etc. Take you out of that and offer you a few weeks to kind of reset, right? And so, you know, and even in that circumstance, I think harm reduction is often a really great first step at least where folks can see if they are able to drink less or reduce the amount of use or just to do so more safely and with intention, especially among folks on the mild to moderate end of the spectrum, oftentimes they are not convinced that they need to give it up completely, right? And if you look at the data, if you look at kind of longitudinal and epidemiological studies, they're right. The vast majority of people who at some point in their earlier in their lives 
met criteria even for a severe substance use issue a few decades later are now drinking or using at low risk levels in particular drinking at low risk levels and so really harm reduction kind of the ethos of harm reduction is bringing in to the to therapy the idea that better is better less is less and we don't have to have a you know an arbitrary goal at the outset for someone that is complete and total abstinence for the rest of their lives and and this also is is it's incredibly humanizing right it's really right helpful and rewarding to folks when they come to see us and and realize that hey i don't have an agenda for you beyond how can i help you live more freely feel better right right sometimes that means cutting out alcohol completely or reducing it drastically but but it doesn't always, right? And here's the other part that I think is so fun and rewarding is we get to start out with specific goals, right? So what would, you know, an improved relationship with alcohol look like for you? Well, it would look like, you know, I have a couple drinks on the weekend, when I'm, you know, with my spouse or hanging out with my friends, but then during the week, you know, I never drink more than whatever, one, one beer, you know, two or three nights a week, right? Okay, cool. Let's set that as a goal and see how it feels to try to stick to that. And over time, sometimes it goes great. And that person's able to attain that pattern and sustain it over the long haul. And other times, it and they turns feel good out that about that's it too. Really you know, they, they and also they, and feel, they feel good about good. it. Yeah, right. right? And, and, you know, like we were talking about earlier, these substances uh, func- serve a function in most people's lives and completely eliminating it leaves a big hole right and sometimes if we can find a way to keep it in their lives then they get the best of both worlds and then if they struggle if they're struggling they're learning something then they're learning and it's like oh yeah no that really sucks and you know now that i think of it why do i want to have one beer what's the point of having one beer it's actually not very fulfilling and you know i've been trying this for three weeks two months or whatever and and i'm not happier and this is causing a lot more problems maybe maybe i want to have a goal of abstinence right but a a person coming to that conclusion themselves based on their own personal experiences, that is going to be 
so much more authentic and likely to be long lasting than if they had just walked through the door on the first day and I had said, you know, I really think you need to abstain and you can't ever drink again, right? They, it, it doesn't even matter if they believe you. They're still going to have that doubt. Like, well, maybe I could. Maybe I'm just not doing it right, right? And so and they haven't made much... that decision from their own core to, to do that yeah. and, and to invest in that. And when that comes from your core and it's congruent with you, you're more likely to do the work to make that happen than, than right. trying to be forced on it. Another thing that you kind of struck me as you were talking to, uh, from, as from a treatment provider perspective, is this model keeps us from or helps us not to project our own idea of what a good life is on somebody else, right? Like, so we don't do that. Absolutely. Like, you know, what is good, what is, what is good for my life is not necessarily good for somebody else's life and that they get to make those decisions and that they have that power and control and, and autonomy to do that. And it sounds like being able to create the environment to set the stage for that. And it's also like a higher level of responsibility too, because it's your choice. Oh, completely. And I mean, you know, look, Dwayne, the, the fact of the matter is humans enjoy getting high right? Like altering our consciousness is about as human an endeavor as almost anything else, right? I mean, we've got Mm -hmm. direct evidence going back, you know, tens of thousands of years that this is something that we like to do that appeals to us. And so I I think we do that all the time, like every day, right? I mean, you go watch a a, a funny movie that you want, you know, you go watch a funny movie or comedy, you're altering your consciousness, you create a certain kind of meal, you're altering your consciousness, you're altering your mood, you're altering, you go and exercise, you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, if you you go to that extreme, what I'm thinking, but yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, but even table salt at one point was, you know, one of the most coveted drugs on the planet because of, you know, what it can do for you in such a short amount of time. And so the other thing for me that harm reduction teaches us and, and, and why it's so important is that, you know, it's not inherently wrong to want to get high and people have should have the the right or the the freedom to self-determination and to to use in a way that is more safe that is allows them to live in a way that's more consistent with their own values And, you know, so many of the harms associated with drugs come from its, you know, prohibition and the drug war and all the things that that we do that are kind of unique to our society at this moment in time. And so, you know, harm reduction can hold all of that while offering, you know, perhaps a, a pathway to a life that is yeah, it just has a little bit more 
more freedom and dignity and centers health versus, you know, some, yeah, like moralistic value. Right. Right. And, and, and that really gives that person the ability to find the life that is meaningful to them, that they can thrive in, that feels good. And that's really where we all want to be at the end of the day. It's like living in our own life that feels good, congruent, living by our own values and no one else's values and being open to discover what that is. And I think, you know, when we have pain in our life and we turn to a substance, you know, to escape that, but it becomes problematic, then, you know, we have some journey to go on there and it's an opportunity for us to figure out what that is grow from it and really i think become the person we were meant to be what you know that is is our true self and and we can use these as opportunities to do that even though it's painful i totally agree yeah yeah it's hard it's hard work but ultimately very rewarding and you know the the thing that i often come back to is that you know health in whatever form that takes or recovery in whatever form that takes for the individual that is the the norm right or that is the direction that our minds and bodies generally lean towards right and so you know over the course of a person's life the average person who has a substance use issue even a severe substance use issue they're likely uh, most more likely to achieve remission, to get well, to achieve recovery than not. The vast majority of people who have a substance use problem do get better and achieve recovery. And so that always you that's know, good that, news. That's, a, that's just a really hopeful, good. Yeah, so that's good news because, like, when we're in the darkness, right? When we in the, when we're in the darkness, it doesn't look like that. Yes. You know, we can we can lose hope about that, and and we cannot see it, and it's so hard to hold on to that. But yeah, I'm I'm glad you're saying that because you know, yeah, when we're in that darkness, it's so hard to see that there's hope out there. So it can be hard, really really hard. Right? Yeah, yeah totally. and then and then we get out into the light, and it's like, how was I? Why was I down? How was I in that darkness for so long? Right. Yeah, yeah, and that means that's that's that place of getting support. So, I have one more question to ask you. We had talked earlier. You talked about support groups, or or mentioned support groups, and I wonder what's the yeah. role of groups in this process, and how do they play into this model of of yeah. uh, working with addiction? Excellent, great question. So, I firmly believe that so much of uh, trauma, so much. Uh, pain and suffering that is so common and almost inherent in the human condition emerges out of relationships, right? People let us down. People hurt us. We hurt others. But relationships are central to the development of the human mind they're central to 
uh, health and well-being and 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 wellness. And you know, a lot of times, one one way to conceptualize addiction is as a replacement for more adaptive or healthy relationships, right? And you can, like, I see it every day. People develop and and a relationship with a drug or alcohol or a behavior, and it it's almost like it takes place of this other important relationship. And then all these other relationships start, start to kind of fade into the background. And that person has this one really important relationship that's kind of central to their whole lives, right? And so in overcoming addiction, there is a really, really critical place for connection and relationships and more healthy and adaptive relationships. And, you know, for, for some folks that can be achieved in the psychotherapy relationship, right? And that can be a whole new template for how to have relationship in, in your life with other people, but it can't completely replace, you know, having a a buddy to call when you, when, you know, when you have a crappy day or when something great happens and you want to share the good news it, you know, you, (laughs) for so many of us that, that drug or alcohol or behavior takes up so much time in your day-to-day life, in your week-to-week life, right? And then when you break free from it, there are just these huge, vast, empty spaces in your weekly schedule that now you have to figure out uh, what to do with. And so finding support groups or, or even counseling groups or whatever it is, meetup groups, etc., can be not just really helpful, but, but but fundamentally healing as a person is kind of moving through this journey of recovery. And good, the good news is, right, in 2024, there are groups for everyone. Right. Like pretty much regardless of what your passion or interest or curiosity is, you can find a group of other folks who have been into that and want to explore it with you. Right. Yeah. For some folks, it's meditation or Buddhism or some other spiritual base group for others it's specific to recovery right not just 12-step recovery but you know smart recovery um there's a whole host Life of ring. Uh, non-12-step recovery yep. programs yep that are that totally. you can find all over the country and online but then even you know yeah like a hiking group or um fishing or or you know winter camping right there's going to be a group of folks doing it yeah and i i kind of think that a lot of times you know addiction like you said earlier you know comes out of trauma and a lot of that trauma comes from these early relationships that have been skewed in some way that 
make the the idea of relationship or connection or attachment threatening in and of itself. So yeah, I think healing that we're wired for connection. We, we need to do that and to reach out and find that space, I think is, is critical for our mental health as, as human beings, because we're social animals. I think at the end of the day, we need that. We we're wired we to are. do that. a hundred percent. We are absolutely are. You know, it's just that when in in my clinical experience, when when we made the group's component optional, folks who came to seek us out for care preferred individualized care and individualized treatment. And so I think that it's it's really vital to have that option and to have that as as easily accessible as possible um, but I, I i would also say that it's not for everybody and that's okay that's okay too right yeah abs- absolutely we each have to find our own way so we're coming up on our time ian as i get to the end of the podcast i always like to ask uh, one question and that's if maybe someone out there is in that darkness that we described in that hopelessness, thinking that there's no possibility for change. And you could say something to them or you'd want, what would you want them to know? What would you want to tell them? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that has made the biggest impact on people that have reached out to me in particular families, right? Families who like whether it's a parent of uh, an adult child, a spouse or sibling or or whomever it is, right? There's it's really easy to get hopeless and really easy to get overwhelmed by everything that's out there. And and I guess, you know, the thing that that I that you know that gives me hope and that I have found has had the biggest impact on others is just that 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 point that you know it it does get better it can get better that the arc of health bends toward uh wellness and that the you know the only thing that separates a person who is still struggling from a person who has achieved long-term recovery is that the person who has achieved long-term recovery, they picked themselves up, dusted themselves off and kept going. They kept trying. Yes. And eventually I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that, I mean, hell, if I can do this, uh, anybody and literally can. anybody can. And so, you know, I would just say, keep at it. It does get better and it can get better. Yeah. I love that you said that, like, keep getting up, don't give up, keep trying. You will find the thing that works for you. Not everything works for you. And some things are going to try no. and they're not going to work. And, but that's okay. And try that's something okay. else. Absolutely. Try something else. 100%. And you will find and stumble upon if you put yourself in that situation, the things that work. So thank you, Ian, for saying that. Thank you for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Where can people find you? Where, where, how can they get a hold of you if they, if they want to know more? 
Absolutely. Yeah. You can find me at my clinic, Expanse, Minnesota. It's www.expansemn.com. Uh, you can find me at my website, ianmcclune.com. And then uh, I'm really excited to be offering a training in April for clinicians on integrating addiction psychotherapy into their practice. And so you can find a link to that on my on my website, and I'll be happy to share that with you, Dwayne, to share with folks. Yeah, I'll put all those links in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. So go and check it out and get a hold of Ian. Thank you so much for coming on the Addicted Mind podcast and sharing your wisdom. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's, it's an honor. Thank you so much. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast as usual. All the links will be in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. So check that out. And if you got a lot out of this episode, share it with a friend. And you can follow us on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. So go there and click the follow button. If you would like more support, check out our new series, The Addicted Mind Plus, where we go into specific small steps you can take in your everyday life to move closer to recovery and live the life you want. So check that out at theaddictedmind.com forward slash plus. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.